For those of you who are new to our church, welcome. We are a new church. We started uh, two years ago. And when we first started, um, we only had like one baby. And as you can see, now we have four children under the age of three. <laughs> and so uh, today was our first children's story, which we'll be incorporating into our worship service. And today was also the first time we had our hymn team come. And so thank you very much, ladies, for that. Um, we have uh, several music teams, and we alternate between hymns and, and praise songs. And so um, thank you for your service today. Roy sends his greetings. He's actually preaching. Well, he should have just finished preaching unless it's a long one um, in Singapore. Um, he's there for a friend's wedding. And of course, when you're a pastor, they ask you to preach while you're on vacation. So there he is. Um, I miss him very much. One, because he's my husband. Secondly, because he's the father of my very active two and a half year old. And um, thank God for Métis, who's been helping with Micah. Otherwise, I think I'd just cry today. <laughs> but... um I really appreciated the children's story, especially because it tied in very nicely with today's theme, which is lust and envy. We're going through a series on the seven deadly sins. And Roy preached uh, last week about, anyone remember? Gluttony and greed. That's right. And uh, today we're going to be looking at lust and envy. Next week we'll have the commissioning, so we'll skip that one. And the week after is going to be sloth. And then we're going to end with wrath and pride, anger and pride. Right, so please come back uh, to finish off the series. And if you missed one, uh, we have all our sermons live streamed as well as recorded on our YouTube and our website. So you can always check it out there as well. So lust and envy. You know, lust and envy, um, we don't have to look very far. We don't have to turn on the TV to know that it's prevalent everywhere. In our own hearts um, and minds as well. And I want to make sure we understand what it is and what it is not. Lust is not to be confused with sexual desire, for example. Sexual desire, as with any other desire, is actually very healthy and was created by God um, in a context to be enjoyed. And so there's nothing wrong with having desires. Um, and there's nothing wrong with having desires that aren't fulfilled and, and wanting them to be fulfilled. So what is it that makes lust different from just a desire or sexual desire or um, longing of any kind? And so if I can kind of define lust as this, I define lust as misdirected desire for what is outside of God's will. So whether that's sexual uh, desire for someone who is not your spouse or whether that's the forbidden fruit um, in the Garden of Eden, whatever it may be, it's something that you long for that is actually not part of God's plan for you right now. That's how I define lust. In the Bible, the Greek word uh, that is translated lust in English is epithemio. Now this word is not always used in a negative sense. Like I said, desire and longing is not always negative. For example, when Jesus uh, sat with his disciples at the Passover feast, he said in Luke 22:15, I've eagerly desired, and that word epithemio is used, I've eagerly longed, desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It was an intense longing. It was, it was this incredible desire that Jesus had to enjoy this last meal with them. And that word epithemio is used throughout the Bible to talk about that longing to be with someone you love or that longing to fulfill God's word. And David actually uses the equivalent in Hebrew to say, I long for your word. I long for my God. 
But then, of course, it's used in the context when it's negative to talk about when we long for things that are, like I said, outside of God's will. Now, God has given us lots of great desires. For example, hunger, right? When you're hungry and you want to eat, that's a very healthy desire. But sin comes in and takes that desire to eat and turns it into gluttony, which we talked about last time. Um, and sex, like I said, is a good, healthy thing that gets turned into lust. You know, when you're thirsty, you want to drink, and then that could turn into, I suppose, drunkenness, depending on what you drink. Um, and, you know, when you're tired, you want to rest, and sleeping is great, except it can lead to sloth. And so it's really about taking healthy desires and twisting them in a way that actually is outside of God's will. Let me give you a, a biblical example. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, when the serpent is tempting Eve to eat the tree, notice what it says. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, let me ask you a question. According to this verse, why did Eve eat the fruit? Talk to me, people. <laughs> huh? She desired it. Why? It was pleasing to the eyes. What else? Gaining, it was desirable for gaining wisdom and good to eat, good for food. Now, when you read that verse, it's very tempting to think, oh, gotta be careful. Anything that's pleasant to the eyes, right? If it's beautiful, turn your eyes away, right? Or, oh, that tastes good. Must not indulge, right? It's so easy to think that these reasons, um, were actually uh, evil in it of themselves. But I want you to point out something very important. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, it says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eyes and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God had already said, This is good for food. It's not like He had like broccoli trees. And then in the middle of the tree of garden, oh, here's this mango tree that looks so succulent. No, he had, you know, pineapple trees and mango trees and, okay, I, pineapple trees are bushes. But you know, you get my point. He had wonderful tasting, good, yummy fruit on all those trees and they didn't look scary. Have you ever, have you ever seen jackfruit in the, in real life? Like before they get cut up, they look, I don't know who looked at that and said, that is edible. Because <laughs> it looks kind of scary. They're huge. When I was in the Philippines, um, I remember seeing them and just thinking, well, you get one and that can feed like the entire town. <laughs> because it's some of them are just ginormous. But And then once you like cut them up, they're very rubbery. And um took me a little bit of time to get used to them. But anyways, these fruits that, that God had planted in the garden, they were they were pleasant to the eyes, meaning they looked juicy, right? They looked, it's not like the ones you buy at the stores that are like half-picked when they're half-ripe. No, they, they smelled ripe. Can you imagine your favorite fruit with all those beautiful colors, right? And it wasn't like one on the branch that would be just laden with them. And so it was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. And in case you're wondering, well, yeah, what about desiring to become wise? Did God provide that? It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 
that God did what? Created mankind in His own image. In other words, God, all wise, all powerful, created Adam and Eve to be wise and powerful and creative and everything that He is to a lesser degree. But still, they were created in His image already. So here's what Satan did: He took things that God had already provided, but presented to them to Eve as if she didn't already have them. Right? Look, isn't it pretty? Look, it's gonna be delicious. And oh, you get to be like God, um, making her forget she was already created to be like God. She already had everything that was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. It's not like she was starving and then she stumbled upon this fruit, right, in the middle of a desert. So that's what Satan does. He takes the desires that God actually created, and then presents a plethora of lies. That make it seem like he's got all the desires that you want, whereas God's the boring one, restricting you. You know, somehow making you eat bland things, and you know you can't have any fun, and Christianity's boring. You know, he he presents this lie where there's a contrast. He says between all the pleasant, desirable things that he has to give versus what God is offering, and of course, the lie because in the end, she takes the fruit, and the only thing it does is makes her feel ashamed. And naked, then she starts arguing with her husband, and then off they run, and you know we know the rest of the story. So, desires in themselves are actually God designed and God given, but it's when we want something that God forbids, something that gets outside of God's will. Because notice how God gave him everything to eat, and the only thing He said is just don't eat from this one. And it was a test of their faithfulness. And of course, they fail that test, and we fail that test all the time. There are two directions we can turn: following God, or believing the lies, believing the lies about God, believing the lies、um, that Satan spins. And there's a verse that kind of echoes、um, this idea. It says, "Do not love the world, or anything in the world." If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world—the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life—comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The world, the word "world," as it is found in this verse, is not talking about people. It's not talking about you know the world, the global. Um, you know, society. It's talking about the worldly mindset or the worldly worldview, where self is at the center of it, where instant gratification is at the center of it, where God is absent from it. And so, you've got on the one hand this worldview, this attitude, this lifestyle that is all about. Doing what I want now, doing what pleases me, regardless of the circumstance,、uh, the consequence it has on others, or regardless of the fact that it's outside of God's will.、Uh, Warren Wiersbe, a Bible commentator, says, "Worldliness is not so much a matter of activity as of attitude. To the extent that a Christian loves the world system and the things in it, he does not love the Father. Worldliness not only affects your response to the love of God." It also affects your response to the will of God. Worldliness is anything in a Christian's life that causes him to lose his enjoyment of the Father's love, or his desire to do the Father's 
will. In other words, we might have our feet in both worlds, but the truth is you can't actually progress in both. When you are involved in both, it's necessarily detrimental to each other because they are their opposite ends. When you are following the worldly mindset, um, naturally you are actually hurting your relationship with God. Let me explain it this way. My two-and-a-half-year-old son, Micah, um, you know, when he started eating solids, we gave him pureed vegetables. And he ate it, and he loved it. And then, you know, we got a little older. We didn't have to puree anymore. We would give him steamed vegetables, steamed carrots, steamed sweet potatoes, um, steamed, you know, anything. And he loved it, and he ate it up. He was a really good eater. We started adding a little salt, things like that. And then... Um, as he got a little older, we thought, okay, now you can have, you know, like once in a while, a special treat. Now, this here's, here's Micah at, sorry, the picture's a bit blurry. At one, enjoying his carrots, okay? Some of it did end up in his tummy, even though most of it's out here. <laughs> enjoying his, his carrots. He used to love carrots. He used to love broccoli. Now, this is him a month ago in Hawaii. We went to the Dole Plantation, and they had pineapple dough ice cream, and I wanted some, and... It's impossible to have some without him knowing. And so look at that. Look at the desire in those eyes. <laughs> right? um, now that he's had ice cream, because before this, we would like, you know, we have a thermomix. So we would like whirl together some frozen fruit. be like ice cream. And he was like, yum, you know, but now he's had this. <laughs> he's had real ice cream, even though this actually has no sugar either. It's just uh, pineapple, apparently. But um, he's come back with this taste for ice cream. And it's not just this one event, but in general nowadays, he refuses to eat his carrots. He will not eat carrots. He will not eat broccoli. He will not eat spinach. He wants ice cream or yogurt or something with lots of sugar in it. And this happens because his taste buds, right, tasted that sweetness and said, yes. This is what I want. And in comparison now, the broccoli that he used to love and the carrots that he used to love no longer tastes good to him. And I think that can happen to us in our own experience as well. We, you know, there's a reason why we find the Bible boring. There's a reason why spiritual things don't interest us as much as TV and sports and, you know, everything else that we enjoy. And I'm not saying those things are evil. I'm just saying that the more we spend enjoying other things um, and indulging in things that actually don't have a lot to do with spiritual things, we kind of lose our taste buds. Um, and so in order for us to kind of regain that taste for spiritual things, sometimes we need that time out, space out away from the things that we're constantly indulging in to then enjoy the flavor of what God has to offer. I said that lust is mis guided um, desire that is outside of God's will. And envy is very similar. Envy is also a misdirected desire. It's desiring someone else's possession, qualities, blessings, achievements, and circumstances. But unlike ambition or admiration or even jealousy, which doesn't have to be negative per se, envy is being discontent and being resentful of that other person's desirable qualities 
and actually wishing and feeling that that person doesn't deserve them and that if they lost them, we would be delighted. Okay? So there's a difference there because jealousy is actually from the root word of jealousy is zealous, the same root word for zeal or zealous. Um, and God actually is zealous. And, and the Bible says jealous. He's jealous because he wants us to worship him exclusively instead of worshiping many, many gods, right? And so jealousy, jealousy can be positive in the sense of it's actually saying, I want an exclusive relationship. Envy is that you have something I want. You don't deserve it. And I want you to suffer. <laughs> I want something bad to happen to you so I can feel better. Um, that's kind of one way of looking at envy. And this kind of envy hurts us. Proverbs 14 verse 30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. I don't know if you've ever felt envious of a friend or a celebrity or someone without children or, you know, I don't know if you've ever gone through that experience where you just, ah, you envy, or actually, I actually envy though people who have children, but then have nannies and grandparents and anyways, um, <laughs> nearby. But, and so envy, envy can really rot you away in your bones. Envy is one of those things that the other person might have no idea you feel this way, but inside it's eating away at you, right? It's eating away at you. Envy can be something even in the workplace, um, in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4, Solomon says, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In other words, you could be, you know, like, man, that person has that promotion, that person has that position I wanted. And you chase after it, you get there only to realize you're actually not satisfied, you want more. And Solomon says, it's, it's all vanity, it's chasing after the wind. You keep chasing and you're going to be exhausted. Envy can cause us to do things that, when we look back, um, it basically, you know, it starts out as something you feel inside, but it can actually be carried out into actions that have immense consequences. In Matthew 27, when um, the Roman Pilate asks the Jewish leaders, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus, Barabbas, who is called, or Jesus, who is called Messiah? It's interesting how Barabbas' first name was Jesus as well. And um, it says that Pilate asked him this question because he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to them. The Jewish leaders were so envious of Jesus because Jesus drew this crowd of people who listened to him, who followed him, who genuinely respected him. And they didn't have that kind of spiritual authority. So out of envy, they crucified him. James says this. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's a vicious cycle, where we take good, healthy desires that God has given us, but we misdirect them towards self-gratification, towards tearing down others through lust and through envy and, and conflict, and then it just gets started all over again. 
So the question is, okay, we've kind of defined what lust and envy are. We've kind of looked at examples of how they've been um, used in history um, and in our own lives. Is there a cure? And I would say yes. The same cure for every sin, which is first acknowledging that it's in us, right? First recognizing that, yeah, there is envy there in my heart. There is lust in my heart. I want things that are outside of God's will. I want things that are not mine, right? And then secondly, to say, okay, God, I constantly lose this battle. To recognize I cannot win against this in my heart. And then we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, you died for that sin because I can't have victory over it. Thank you for forgiving me. Give me also victory, right? Give me also victory. And there's a process that we do this. The song that we sang right before um, we had the children's story, it said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In other words, in James chapter 4, so there's a chapter after he has kind of listed the, the problems, he said, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In other words, when we want, whether it's lust, whether it's envy, whether it's gotten you or greased or whatever it is, when we want those things to be transformed, to, to be rooted out of our lives, sometimes we think, okay, I'm just going to grip my teeth and, and clench my fist and not envy. You know, And the more we do that, we're actually going to find that the more difficult it is to overcome it. It's like when you are driving and you tell yourself, don't hit the pole, don't hit the pole, don't hit the pole. But because you're thinking about the pole, you're looking at the pole, you're going towards the pole, right? Whereas if you're just focused on the road ahead, right, the, the things on the side will, will go by. Let me give an example in my own life. A little time of um, vulnerability. <laughs> when I was, my first boyfriend that I had was my first uh, year at uni. And as with your first relationship, it was, I felt hard. I, I felt pretty hard. Um, now, I went into this relationship without really seeking God's guidance. I went into it because I wanted to. And after about a year, I realized it was really bugging me. I knew that it wasn't the right relationship. Great guy, but I just knew it wasn't the right relationship that I, I didn't go into for the right reasons. Um, and so I broke up with him. But even though we broke up officially, I wasn't over him. And people still saw us together. I, I was still thinking about him. You know, there was still, you know, when you like have friends that you know that there's something going on, even though they say nothing's going on. We were that couple, right? For two more years, for two more years. So three years. Um, and every day I would pray, God, help me to get over him. Help me to get over him. And it seemed like, no, even if I would pray that prayer, you know, I would be thinking about him again. Oh, there's my feet heading towards, you know, his dorm room. Oh, there we are having lunch together again. You know, it was just so difficult. The summer, um, so after three years, so the summer right before my last year at uni, I went to France and I told you a few sermons ago that I uh, spent a wonderful time there in the mountains of France. 
And、um, while I was there, because I was away from my normal life, you know, didn't know anybody there,、uh, didn't have internet.、Um, yeah, there was a TV, but like there were like two channels on it, and the only books I had were in French, except for the Bible. I had my English Bible, and I was so happy to read something in English, you know, that I ended up spending two to three hours a day just reading my Bible, and just immersing myself、um, in the Word of God, and also in the mountains. Just you know, I would wake up. I had no choice. You wake up really early when you're in the mountains because it's really cold, <laughs> and the birds and everything. So I would wake up at like. The crack of dawn, I would go outside, and the sun is rising over the, the French Alps, and I would just, my heart would just sing praises, and I would just pray, and so I, I had this two months where I was just completely、um, immersed more in spiritual things than in worldly things, which in my normal life, you know, at most I would spend like thirty minutes with God, and the rest of my day is with doing everything else, but here I was spending two to three hours with God, and. You know, the rest of the day I did other things, but there was a very concentrated amount of time. And what I realized by the end of that summer was, I was like, "Hey, I haven't thought about him in a long time." And I kind of realized I actually don't feel, um, you know, when you know you've, you're finally over someone, you just feel at peace, you feel released. And I felt that, and I realized. It wasn't because I had—I actually had forgotten to pray to get over him during that time. It wasn't something that was, you know, forefront on my mind. But it naturally went away because as I drew near to God, the things that were between me and God, and, and that relationship had been, in my personal experience,、um, naturally just faded away. And so, one of the best ways that we can uproot the things in our lives that, in our hearts that.、Um, You know, lead us down to envy and lust and all these other things, is to actually spend quality time drawing near to God, and letting God then, in His power through His Spirit, release us from the things that keep us captive. One good way to focus on God is to look at the example of Jesus. In Philippians chapter two, Paul says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Notice how Paul says, "When you look to the interests of others, right." You're following the example of Jesus. Jesus, who was God, emptied himself completely, got rid of all his privileges, and said, "I will come and be just like humanity." And then, when even a step further, and said, "I will humble myself even more to the most humiliating death possible at that time, which was the cross, completely naked,、um, in front 
of everyone in public, flogged and crucified. I think when we have Jesus' example in front of us and we meditate on that example, that worldview that is self-centered begins to shift. And then we take on a Christ-centered worldview where it's about how can we please God and follow his will and how can we serve the interests of others. There's another way to overcome the pervasiveness of lust and envy. In addition to spending time with him and, and looking at the life of Jesus, is Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual morality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor there should be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather, and what does it say? Thanksgiving. This, um, there's a man named Heath Limbart who wrote a book called Finally Free, Fighting for Purity with the Power of Grace. And he talks about how gratitude, thanksgiving, is actually a great antidote for greed. And he defines greed as what kind of fuels um, lust and envy and everything else because it's that desire to satisfy me, right? And he says, when we practice thanksgiving, right, we are actually focusing on what we have and what God has given to us rather than what we don't have and what we want and desire. And so something as simple as just making that practice of thanking God every day, right? Whether it's through prayer, whether you write it down, whether you share with someone, but just coming up with this is what happened today that I'm actually really thankful for. That practice of gratitude can be a simple and yet really effective step in fighting against lust and envy. Here's another verse that may help you. It says, Jesus is talking and he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, Jesus is not encouraging dismemberment um, and self-mutilation here. He's exaggerating, okay? He's exaggerating to make a point. And his point is simply this. Sin is deadly. Do what you gotta do to not go there. And if it's a drastic measure, then take it. Jesus is saying you have to make your priorities straight because it matters. And so whether that's cutting off your internet whether that's um, maybe just making different choices about uh, the kinds of things that you indulge in or the company that you keep or even the career that you have. Sometimes you have to make difficult choices in order to place yourself in an environment where you can actually thrive spiritually rather than feel like you're constantly battling against a worldly mindset. Um, We don't have to be in a cave to please God. And I'm not advocating, and Jesus is not advocating that we, you know, become hermits, you know, stay away from everybody and stay away from everything. That's not the point. The point is we can live in the world and be beneficial to others without indulging and exposing ourselves to things, whether it's media or people um, or magazines that make us envy or that make us covet or that make us lust, right? There's a big difference between um, 
walking into a strip club and exposing yourself to that versus saying, you know what, I'm going to walk by, right? So there are decisions we have to make that make a difference about the kind of influence we let in. Dr. Robert um, Zajunk, I, I don't know how to say his name correctly, he's a psychologist at the University of Michigan, and he conducted a study that found that long-married couples actually do look alike. Um, he did this study where he basically took couples, you know, photos of couples when they were first married and then 25 years later. And uh, he had separate pictures of the men and women and he had people come in and they had to match who they thought the husband and wife were. And they found that, um, you know, I forget this per- percentage exactly, but that actually a lot of people got the couples right because there was a resemblance there. Um, and according to him, he says, people often unconsciously mimic the facial expressions of their spouse in silent empathy. And over the years, sharing the same expressions shapes the face similarity. Okay. And so there's a verse in the Bible that says, by beholding, you become changed. And so my point is simply this. What you see, what you do, what you involve yourself in matters. Because the more time you spend with that, the more subconsciously, whether you like it or not, you become like that. It becomes natural to you. Um, and I'm sure there's a whole neurological pathway thing we could discuss there, but I won't. But um, it matters what we behold. By beholding, we become changed. So my challenge is this. What are we beholding? What are we tasting? What are we indulging in? Is it the flavors of spiritual things? Are, the, are, are they the things that are pleasant to the eyes and good for food and all the positive things that God has provided? Or are we desiring and lusting after things that are actually outside of God's will and that's taking us away from Him? Jesus told a parable where He said, Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown in rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. And if you're wondering, well, what's, what's the crop? What do we get? And Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And so that's my challenge for us today. Perhaps it's that simple step of just making a list of 10 things you're grateful for each day. Or perhaps you have to stop going on Facebook and looking at what everyone else's wonderful lives look like. right? Or perhaps, I don't know, you know best what it is that makes you feel envious or lustful or whatever it may be. Perhaps it's time to make those changes, small or big, and draw near to God, expose ourselves to Him, 
and let His Holy Spirit change us and transform us so that as we turn our eyes on Him, those other things will fade away. May that be our prayer. And as we sing our closing song, I surrender all. I hope and pray that the desire of your hearts will be Jesus and Jesus first and foremost.